Hi, I'm Devlin Camp. Thanks for joining me. Over on QueerSerial.com or on my Instagram at QueerSerial, you can explore the complete Queer Serial episode guide. You can also buy Queer History merch, explore my archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary currently in production, and subscribe to listen to bonus episodes. If you subscribe to any of my bonus content through Spotify, Patreon, or Apple Podcasts, your subscription supports all of my ongoing LGBTQ history projects. Thank you so much. There are links to everything here in the episode notes or at QueerSerial.com. This is Season 5 of Queer Serial, a standalone miniseries. Heads up, this season features sensitive sexual content. These episodes detail the true story of a panic that swept Boise, Idaho in 1955. A panic that continues to spread and damage our communities today. And then Charlie Kirk will go and say, man, we should take care of these trans people the way men did in the 50s and 60s, meaning physically harm them. Daily Wire host Michael Knowles said that, quote, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely, the whole preposterous ideology. So it's live exactly how we tell you to live. Then you have our permission to exist. When they say they want to end the ideology, they do mean they want to make it impossible for trans people or non-binary people to exist in public life. As all uh, fascistic movements do, they like to troll and pretend they're not saying what they're obviously saying. Claim offense when you point out the implications of what they're actually saying. We're here to fix you. Do not take offense when I call out the freaks in their freak show. It's not my opinion. Almighty God said it. This is what we're subjecting the families to. This is a an abomination. And of course, people should arm themselves with the literature. Yeah, people should definitely arm themselves. I agree with that. Uh, gay Americans, LGBTQ Americans are being attacked more today uh, than in recent times. Right now in Tennessee, I can get a gun and carry it around in public, but I can't put on a fucking wig. Do you support the sexualization of kids through pride propaganda by Sir, corporate? Is there something that we can help you with? I'm just asking people questions. And it's all about erasing people by making them feel unsafe to present in public. LGBTQ Americans are facing a surge of hate speech, a growing number of armed protests at events featuring drag performers, all too frequently deadly violence. How do you think that people of color and trans women and trans women who are people of color who do drag feel? I mean, they might not get a second chance because police do not treat those people the same. I see this affecting normal people, women who wear pants. This is gonna all creep and get crazier and crazier. And that is the measure of a free country in the end. Are you allowed to believe that there's an authority higher than the people in charge of your government? That has always been the hallmark of America, religious liberty. December 23rd, 1955. Judgment Day for the next five accused men. A huge snowstorm has hit Boise this morning. In the wake of one man already sentenced to life, the next five of the 15 total men arrested so far get bundled up for a long day at the Ada County Courthouse. Fellow Boiseans step outside to brush the snow off their morning papers. On the front page of the Statesman, the City Council has an announcement. The mayor, Mayor Edlison, has been furious about that Time magazine piece covering their town, so he's been pushing the City Council and the cops to clean up the gay problem, demanding that the police, quote, spare no one, his words. The City Council is totally in agreement. 
Councilman Buck Jones also wants every homosexual in town jailed, and he pushes his fellow council members to release this three-column statement to the newspaper. It says, in part, The mayor and members of the Boise City Council have held several special meetings in which many interrogations were conducted relative to the conditions as they are known in Boise today, namely the apparent lack on the part of some citizens of a respect for law and order, both governmental and moral. Also, to ascertain certain definite moves which the Boise City government can make to improve and aid local law enforcement, we have come to several definite conclusions, some of which we herewith wish to make public. We find that law enforcement has not been as efficient as it should be. This, we find, has been due to several conditions, such as certain inequities in our civil service code, lack of sufficient pay, and a general lack of administrative ability. Also, a serious lack of the proper tools for good law enforcement, and most certainly a need for new legislation on the state level. At the next budget time in May, we intend to look very thoroughly into the matter of pay, commensurate with ability, time, and position of our police force. We intend to provide our police department with the tools needed for better law enforcement, and will make it part of our responsibility to see that they are used to the fullest. We have come to the obvious conclusion that Boise City problems are not exclusive. Many of our problems are also problems of every city in Idaho, and in this light, we would like to make certain observations. We believe that Ada County and Boise City should go together and pay for a well-trained investigating officer to deal primarily with the homosexual problem, and that this said officer should be permanent to see to it that we are never again in the position we now find ourselves. It is also our suggestion that the state employ such personnel on a statewide basis. The state should provide a valuable department of law enforcement, which no city can afford by itself, but which should be available to all of Idaho, and that is a crime laboratory and central record department. In this respect, a local business concern stands by ready to buy a lie detector for use by such a laboratory, and Boise City is willing and anxious to pay for the training of a man to operate it. Such a laboratory would be a great help to all of Idaho. As it is today, a known criminal, for the most part, is only known primarily in one city, whereas with information and records being centralized from the county levels to the state center, known criminals, perverts, etc., would not be as free to ply their trades as they now are. But most important, a central laboratory with proper facilities and experienced personnel should help to solve all sorts of crimes much more rapidly and with much less expense of the total tax dollar. There has been considerable interest generated along the line of a separate place of incarceration for homosexuals in order that they might receive special psychiatric treatment. This we heartily endorse and urge that the state bend every effort along these lines. In conclusion, we feel that Boise would be a much better place for our children if those guilty of molesting our youth and committing immoral acts against them are not only convicted and sentenced, but also that all those who live outside the law are vigilantly watched and rigidly prosecuted for any felonies in the future. This cannot be accomplished to the fullest, unless the above suggestions are brought to fruition by the joint efforts of the state of Idaho, its counties, and its cities. Okay, Mary, <laughs> this is printed under the large and wordy headline, Boise City Council and Mayor Reveal Police and Moral Study and Plans. Announcement contains appeal for aid at state and county levels. Special homosexual details sought. It should come as no surprise to you folks listening in 2023 that when press or politicians describe the police as inadequate, Cops are encouraged to double down on their bullshit. And in this case, the city council is implying that if cops worked harder to catch homosexuals, 
then homosexuals wouldn't exist. And not only is the council demanding the cops find and arrest more homosexuals, they're calling for a full-time fag hunter. The council is also demanding more psychiatric treatment in a separate place of incarceration. This request for essentially an internment place for gays, for all the gays in the state, is published in the local newspaper the very morning that five people are heading to the state courthouse to plead guilty to being homosexual. Most of them push to plead guilty to get medical care because they were just homosexuals, not pedophiles. Some of them did not molest any minors, but were simply gay men wrapped up in the witch hunt for anyone Boise saw as deviant. Basically, the city council says, via the newspaper, lock them all up. The statesman's editor either isn't aware, or at least doesn't print, that the city has already hired a homosexual hunter and rented him a house on 16th Street to do his work in secret. Reading this call for action, the people of Boise expect harsh sentences from their elected judges. Just what Councilman Buck Jones is hoping for. Idaho, 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 how they'll ever get in quiet, I don't know. Every day's a celebration, it's a steady occupation, being noisy out in Boise, Idaho. I'm Devlin Camp, and this is Gay Panic, Episode 5, Police Budget. Or, Calm Minds Are In Control. As five of Boise's charged homosexuals head to court, a sixth is on his way to see his psychiatrist. The 34-year-old pianist, who is also accused by 20-year-old adult Eldon Halverson, he's forced to get the truth on the record before his own hearing. The psychiatrist readies the needle and brings the pianist into a state of narcosis with intravenous sodium amytal, considered at this time as a sort of truth serum. But telling the truth can be just as detrimental to a case, as is proven by some of the homosexuals standing before the judges Young and Kolsch today. Charles Brokaw, the freight line worker who offered, as Prosecutor Blaine Evans put it, cooperation and help in other cases. He named names of other gays in town. Brokaw stands before the judge first. Judge Kolsch says, I viewed the fact of your cooperation as a commendable step forward toward your own self-rehabilitation. The judge states that he believes psychological rehab will fix Brokaw. Judge Kolsch sentences Brokaw to six months in Ada County Jail and parole. Benny Castle, the clothing store clerk, stands before Judge Kolsch next. Kolsch says, you've been afflicted with this condition your full adult life. You have been involved primarily with younger people. I feel you have had a damaging influence on their future conduct. You have had a hand in helping a number of youths deviate. Benny Castle is sentenced to 10 years in the penitentiary. Next up is Charles Pruitt. Pruitt has only been charged with one crime against nature, exactly one month ago, with an adult. 
In his hearing, he spoke of his lifelong homosexual experiences since his time in the orphanage. He was completely honest. Judge Kolsch says, You attempted to establish yourself, but you were unable to cope with the situation. That does not excuse or minimize the potential. Again, Judge Kolsch's statement implies that he believes a homosexual is able to be rehabilitated. But then he sentences Charles Pruitt to five years in the penitentiary. There isn't much of a distinction between Brokaw's case and Pruitt's, except for the facts that Brokaw molested minors and Pruitt did not. But Brokaw named names, and Pruitt did not. So Brokaw got a little jail time and parole, and Pruitt gets the pen. The high-profile banker Joe Moore is fourth. Moore's arrest shook the town. Joe Moore is the man whose name was scribbled over Al Travelstead's in the accusing statement by Lee Gibson, but Travelstead skipped town to Mexico, so Joe's name was written in. Moore's lawyer, Carver, presented a three-hour testimony just over a week ago, bringing in several character witnesses, reading a 56-page research paper, and stating that understanding sexual deviation requires the burying of a number of ghosts born of our prudery and ignorance. Judge Kolsch responds today with equal time, having clearly done some research. He quotes Drs. Kinsey and Karpman, who we've covered on previous seasons of this podcast. Judge Kolsch even states that all people are bisexual. He explains, though, if one person gets away with a crime and another doesn't, that's not fair. And also, if he allows the person who got caught to get away with the crime, then those who don't get caught will be encouraged to keep committing the crime. He can't just let Joe Moore go. Kolsch adds that if they don't punish lawbreakers, it's also an injustice to those people who don't break the law. It's a very long statement, essentially wrapping up to say people are born homosexual, sure, but the law's the law. And as for the banker's sentence, there's no way the judge can satisfy Joe Moore's desire for medical rehabilitation and the community's loud demands for justice. Judge Kolsch concludes... I am always bitterly disappointed when a man of your background, talents, and former reputation stands before me as a common criminal. You have stood high in the esteem of the community and should be expected to do more than simply measure up to the required standards or ordinary moral and and ethical conduct. Instead, you have let us down. How are younger and less fortunate people to be expected to have respect for the dignity of the law if persons of your caliber allow their talents to be warped into antisocial channels? The lawyer, Carver, had made a lot of great points. He had made a case for consenting adults, a case for mental health treatment for those who involved minors, a case against pointless prison sentences, and explained the impossibility of jailing all homosexuals anyway. The lawyer put up a good fight, but the law's the law. Judge Kolsch sentences Joe Moore to seven years in the penitentiary. Willard Wilson hears his sentence last. Judge Merlin Young agrees with Kolsch. Young says that adults who engage in this homosexual practice should expect more than the prospect of psychiatric treatment. The act upon which you are particularly charged is activity with a boy of the age of 14 years. As an adult, you have an obligation to the youth of the community, and no matter what the boy involved may be himself or your own desires, you, as an adult, have the duty to discharge and not engage in such activities with him or similar boys. 
In other words, this judge is saying people may be homosexual, but you betray the community when you bring children into your sex life. Willard Wilson gets five years in the pen. The five sentences between the two judges are drastically inconsistent. Ralph Cooper, back in early November, was sentenced to life. Castle, Moore, and Wilson were accused by minors and sentenced to 10, 7, and 5 years in the penitentiary, respectively. Pruitt was accused by an adult and also got 5 years. Brokaw was accused by a minor but named other gay men and got 6 months jail and probation. The reporter, John Garrisey, who will follow every detail of the story a decade later, he'll raise many more questions about this day, beginning with, why would Judge Kolsch sentence these men on the logic that punishment is a deterrent to crime, when that's clearly statistically not true in 1950s Idaho? Punishment is not a deterrent to crime. Despite all legal deterrents, crime in Idaho has risen faster than their population in the 1950s. Garrisey will explain that the existence of crime is not due to the lack of punishments for them. Crime exists because of extenuating factors like financial security, personal experiences, impending disasters, uh, drafts to war, atomic threats that change the community's perception of what is acceptable behavior in this society. Just looking over the past records of some of the men accused so far before the Boise scandal, clearly neither punishment nor conversion therapy are deterrents to the crime of homosexuality. These men have consistently tried not to be gay. In larger cities, like San Francisco or New York City, where Garrisey is from, people might dislike homosexuals or transgender people, and maybe even consider it a crime or a mental illness, but they would think locking them all up is absurd and ineffective and pretty obviously impossible. But most of the nation is made up of towns like Boise, full of people who think of queers as rare and as criminals preying on kids, worse than regular common criminals, because queers want to spread their lifestyle of crime onto the next generation, children that they can't give birth to, so they have to corrupt mine. This crime that feels so icky because it is sexual must be met with so much punishment that no one dare commit it. But as this journalist discovers, punishment is not a deterrent to crime. So why was prison even on the table? Most folks don't really like to over-examine their instincts when it comes to snap judgments about queer people, or any minority. Their gut might twinge at the first suggestion of sodomy, or scissoring, or sex for pleasure instead of procreation. And if a person can't get past that, it's difficult to move on to real education and reasoning. Many people don't want to be told their gut instinct is wrong, and they refuse to be educated. That's why you hear people on Fox News say this so often, even in 2023. If it's something that uh, people should trust their instincts on, uh, people should push back against this. And even when people are willing to question their gut feeling and educate themselves, like Judge Kolsch, they feel pressured to uphold the expectations of others around them. During his research into this dark case in Boise's history, the reporter John Garrisey examines another statement Judge Kolsch made 
that if they don't punish the lawbreakers, it's an injustice to those people who don't break the law, implying the faggots who stay in the closet and stay celibate. Garrisey will write in 1965, The question of justice for the innocent, if he is not punished for his crimes, it is unfair to me, is much too loaded to use as a criteria for law and order. What would stop me, for example, to use that argument as follows? Rockefeller did not work for his money, but inherited it. I work hard, but I'm poor. It's unfair, and Rockefeller's money should be taken away from him and distributed to us poor. I'm sure that the Columbia Law Review would not like to see its argument used to promote socialism. Garrisey examines these inconsistent rulings and the logic of both judges and finds that Judge Kolsch's true philosophy is clear in his rulings. Don't commit the crime, stay in the closet, stay celibate. Or commit a homosexual crime if you want. If you're caught and you cooperate with the police, inform on other queers, people you've slept with, friends in your life, this court will be lenient. Garrisey wonders, would this philosophy stand for other crimes, like for murderers? In the same courthouse, over in the jail, Mrs. Teresa Baker waits for her hearing. Having just confessed to the murder of her husband, shooting him right in front of her son, Tex Baker, and his friend, Lee Gibson. You'll recall Lee Gibson accused Ralph Cooper and Al Travelstead, then Joe Moore in Al's place. 17-year-old Tex Baker, who accused Benny Castle and Joe Moore, will now have a lonely Christmas with his mother in jail for killing his father as she waits for her turn on the stand. Now, a word from our sponsor. You can listen to the first four seasons of Queer Serial free wherever you're listening to this episode right now. Hear the story of American queer liberation from its roots in the 1920s all the way through to Stonewall and beyond. If you'd like to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects, like the Randy Wicker and Marsha P. Johnson archives and my documentary currently in production, you can subscribe to bonus episodes of Queer Serial. It's $2.99 a month to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or if you subscribe for $3 a month, one cent more on Spotify or Patreon, you can also see my Queer History archive dives and behind the scenes of my documentary. That gets you everything I've ever posted on Patreon since the podcast started in 2017, and all of my bonus episodes, the Queer Serial spinoff stories, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riot interviews, Mattachine Meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. And you can go ahead and see everything on that list in the episode guide at QueerSerial.com episodes. If you'd like to support my queer history work and get some gay merch for it, visit my new Etsy shop. I've got lots of podcast merch from throughout the series, lots of unique queer history related items that make cute gifts, like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar, featured in season two, some lovely mugs with rainbow maps that say queer history is world history. I have Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always from a note she wrote to Randy that's in her archive that I've been processing at the LGBT Center here in New York. My Etsy also has other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested and also stickers that you can put in textbooks that lack queer history to warn future readers of that book. Lots of stickers and buttons and fun stuff like that. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. 
There are links to all of this and the bonus episodes and everything in the episode notes here and on my Instagram at Queer Serial and at QueerSerial.com. Thank you all so much for your support. You've enabled me to do so much over the past six years. I'm so grateful. Okay, that's it. That's my ad. Enjoy act two of this episode. Christmas Eve, 1955. The Statesman prints another editorial, giving the city council a little boost. This time under the headline, The Council Shows the Way. The Boise City Council and Mayor Edlison have issued a joint statement in respect to law enforcement and control of homosexuals that should be recognized as the most important governmental step in 1955. The statement will be welcomed by every thinking citizen of the community and applauded throughout the state and the nation. Immediately following the first homosexual arrests in Boise, the council inaugurated a series of closed hearings. We have not understood what took place at these hearings or who may have been interrogated, and there have been so many rumors in Boise the last several weeks that speculation would not have been only useless but dangerous. The council and mayor are in agreement that Boise needs more police activities. Furthermore, they are agreed to provide the funds for this expansion. In fairness to the present police administration, it must be recognized that their activities have been limited by the city police budget. Police salary schedules are ridiculously low from top to bottom. This has been one of the controlling factors. Special attention must be paid to the fact that there is no question as to the integrity of the city police department. Boise's government is in good hands. Calm minds are in control. Just as it has taken the council several weeks to proceed to the point where it could make a definite announcement of its findings, so will it take another like period to affect its purposes. But affect them, the council will. When done, the community will be back to normal ways, purged of a bitter situation it has had the courage to face. Aside from an occasional weakling who has not realized the scope and consequences of this problem, all concerned have measured up extremely well. The crime would have been to sweep this social disgrace under the community carpet to let it continue to ravage children. Other communities may well take note of the procedure which has been followed by the Boise City government in meeting head-on the challenge of the homosexual. Until it is met in other areas, and it exists in all of them, the problem that has been faced here will one day surely rise to plague them. Whatever the council and the mayor decide necessary in the way of law enforcement revision or in law enforcement expansion must be welcomed regardless of cost. There is no measure of the value of a safeguard that this community requires in the name of decency and family protection. The council shows the way. The statesman's editorial implies that the council and the mayor have done all sorts of things to get rid of homosexuals, but all they've done is secretly hire Agent Fairchild to interrogate gays in the house on 16th Street. And the newspaper doesn't even seem to know about that, and the people of Boise obviously don't know about that. So really, as far as anyone knows, the council and the mayor haven't done anything to catch the so-called perverts. It was the police who arrested those 15 men, But the newspaper is saying the police haven't done anything yet because they need more money. What this editorial really gives away is that the people working on the newspaper are fully aware that the city council is experiencing high tensions with the police and the sheriff 
and the prosecutor. The newspaper now is siding with the councilman and the mayor, helping them push and urge the cops to catch more queers so the city government can look effective. They want the people to want more justice. Letters come into the statesman. Mrs. Mary Coe writes, I think that they certainly need to probe more fully into the morals problem. Also, more should be done for the young people, both those involved and the others, as a solution and preventative measure. J. Lowell Askison writes from Grangeville, The people of Idaho are confronted with great problems related to their social behavior. The rest of the state takes pride in the way the Boise community is facing up to this filthy canker. Our political liberties, as well as our social ideals of Christian democracy, are the issues at stake. In the days following the holiday, the town cools for a moment. Joe Moore and Willard Wilson file appeals to the state Supreme Court. Dr. Butler, the well-educated doctor returned home from Europe, finally takes over the Idaho Division of Mental Health. The holiday won't last long, though. Boise's rumor mill springs back to life again as Tex Baker and his mother return to the headlines on December 29th. In her preliminary hearing, the details laid out by Mrs. Baker don't line up. After quite a bit of questioning, finally, the truth comes out about what happened 10 days ago in the Baker family dining room. Tex Baker came home on leave from the Army and called up some friends, including Lee Gibson. He told them all to come over because he was going to kill his father. And they did. Tex Baker's father was incredibly abusive, often beating his wife and kids to the point of heavy facial bruises. Mrs. Baker once went to the police to report him. After an involuntary stay in the mental hospital in Blackfoot, Mr. Baker returned home to beat them again. He forced his wife to eat a cigarette and soap. Tex Baker couldn't stand it anymore. In front of his friends and siblings, Tex took the family pistol from its hiding place in the dining room and shot his father. Someone pointed out that he wasn't dead yet, so Tex turned around and shot him two more times. Teresa Baker came running from the other room, took the pistol from her son's hands, cleaned off the prints, and held the gun in her hands. She told the boys to tell the police that she did it. The investigators asked Lee Gibson why he lied, why he said she did it. He says Mrs. Baker wanted it that way. Just under a week ago, the testimonies provided by Tex Baker and Lee Gibson put two men in prison. Those men had pleaded guilty and were clearly guilty of some kind of homosexual act to some extent. But now Joe Moore, the man they both have in common, is appealing his sentence, just as the mental state of his two accusers are questioned. The following day, December 30th, another man resists his punishment. A prominent attorney, Paris Martin, is the first of the arrested 15 to plead not guilty. Paris was also accused by the 20-year-old adult, Eldon Halverson. The town boils up again. Someone pleading not guilty and two men appealing their cases? Boiseans wonder, will these homosexuals get away with their immorality? Sheriff Doc House returns to Boise after his long trek to West Point, New York, where he interviewed a Boisean cadet. 
Like his fellow local officials, Sheriff Doc is infuriated by all the recent news, particularly the new Time Magazine issue, which has printed a second piece about them on January 2nd, 1956. It's embarrassing to see their town nationally ridiculed again, especially because it's been two months since the Halloween news broke, reporting hundreds of perverts in Boise, and only a few of them have been taken care of. Sheriff Doc House and his wife get back in the car and hit the road again, this time for San Francisco. The sheriff will bring results to the town. He'll prove himself worthy to the city council and the citizens, even if he has to drag a prominent local homosexual all the way back to Boise. Tune in next time for the YMCA secretary, a queen, and a cross. Stay tuned to hear me read some credits if you like. And in the meantime, you can visit QueerSerial.com or QueerSerial on Instagram for the complete series episode guide and lots of images and videos from the true history on this podcast. If you want bonus episodes featuring exclusive interviews with queer legends and spinoff stories from Queer Serial, you can now subscribe to get the full catalog of bonus episodes for $2.99 on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. Just visit the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts. You can also get all of those bonus episodes, plus Queer History archive dives and exclusive behind-the-scenes peeks into production on my documentary by subscribing to my Patreon now through Spotify. It's super easy. Just open Spotify and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows, and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. That Spotify feed will also give you access to everything on my Patreon. Or if you just want the bonus episodes, you can save a whole penny and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. By the way, the documentary I mentioned is basically a sequel project to Queer Serial. It's created by me and Jim Morrow at Viridian Coast Studios, and it's all about archiving Randy Wicker's gay forest gump of a life. And it's about his extended gay family, including Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, and so many more people whose names deserve to be written into our history. The Wicker Family documentary is very much a queer serial movie. You can help support my work archiving Randy and Marsha's materials with the LGBT Center archives here in New York, an ongoing years-long process, and see behind the scenes of that project and its documentary at patreon.com slash queerserial. You can also support my work by shopping in my Etsy store, etsy.com slash shop slash queerhistoryuplift or just by subscribing to bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Patreon. Every little bit of support helps. Okay, thanks for listening. Here are the credits. Resources for this series include John Garrisey's 1965 book, The Boys of Boise, Seth Randall's 2006 documentary, The Fall of 55, and Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America by John D'Amelio and Estelle B. Friedman. Find more info at QueerSerial.com. To learn more about America's history of gay panics and their causes, listen to Queer Serial Season 1, Episode 4, The Lavender Scare. Music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. The theme song, It's Noisy Out in Boise, Idaho, is a 1949 song by the King's Jesters. Could that be more perfect for a Mattachine production? This show is entirely supported by subscribers on Patreon and by bonus episode subscribers on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Just $2.99 a month. Thank you. Queer Serial is written, hosted, edited, produced, etc. by me, Devlin Camp. What a cool job. Back next week. Bye.